0: This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Stephanie Butnick.
1: Hello, good evening.
0: Good evening, it is Monday evening. We're getting a jump on the week's news. And my other co-host, Liel Leibovitz. I raise my martini. To you, friends.
1: That is a beautiful glass. Well,
0: thank you. Are you one of those people, Liel, who believes
2: that the drink tastes better when drunk out of a better glass? Absolutely. What do you mean believes that, like, like, (laughs) element of faith? It's science, Mark. It's hashtag science that it tastes better. I won't
0: let this take over our show, but I actually think that's, that is hooey, as the old folks say. In another forum you and I shall debate this. And Stephanie shall settle the question. I will. But first, we have a show to get through. Today on the show, we're bringing you an interview with our Jew of the Week, Zachary Noah Peiser. He is the new star of the Broadway show, Dear Evan Hansen. And also for Pride Month, we debut a new interactive tablet project called The Minion. Now, The Minion is gonna be an ongoing series of moderated discussions about the state of the Jewish community, each of them focusing in on a little different subset of American Jewry. This first installment, gathered 10 LGBTQ plus Jews from across the United States and asked them whether they have found a home in Jewish life. It's moderated by our friend, Abby Pogerman, and you are gonna have such a fun time listening to this, this bit of audio. We're so excited to share it with you. Finally, we're gonna check in with our past guest, Jonathan Ornstein, a former JOTW, Jew of the Week. He is the director of the Krakow JCC, and over there in Poland, they are doing a lot to help Ukrainian refugees. So jam-packed with Jews, with excitement, hot sauce, Fizz, carbonated drinks—it is a fizzy, exciting summer juice extravaganza. But before we launch into, I don't know, what may be the greatest episode ever, can I tell you guys where I was over the weekend? You visited the Mustard Museum.
1: I don't know how are you going to follow up your reunion.
0: I <laughs> last weekend reunion. This weekend, I went to Chicago to take my daughter Elizabeth. And I say this with her permission. I said, Elizabeth, you have to let me talk about this on the pod. Six months ago, let me back up. Six months ago, Elizabeth says to me, Jessica Kent is having a meet and greet for all of her fans. Long story short, Jessica Kent is a YouTube personality, influencer, YouTuber, who is probably in her 30s, has two children, is in, formerly incarcerated. Where she went to prison for dealing drugs. She's in recovery, and she does YouTube videos of you know five to ten minutes about um, the carceral state, about prison life, about the path to recovery, about trauma, and. Elizabeth, our 13-year-old, loves these videos. And initially, my wife and I were skeptical because if you looked at Jessica Kent's resume, you know, of ex-convict, drug user, et cetera, you wouldn't say the person we want our 13-year-old under the sway of. By the way,
2: I'm sorry, but even even much more troubling than ex-con or drug dealer is YouTuber.
0: I know, I know. Mama, don't let your kids grow up to be YouTubers, but they all aspire to be YouTubers. At least she's not aspiring to be a TikToker. But Sid and I watched some of the videos and they're actually quite moving and quite smart. And she really is promoting psychological health and, and seeking good therapy and good treatment and all good things. So when Elizabeth said, can we go to Chicago and buy two $25 tickets to, to her meet and greet? I thought about it. I thought, you know, why the heck not? Like I do all sorts of things with my kids. I'll take them to the theater. I'll take them to ball games. I'll take them to concerts. I'll take them to the beach. Why not look for two discount tickets to Chicago where we can visit my sister and brother-in-law and niece anyway and have a fun weekend, a father-daughter weekend, and see Jessica Kent. She didn't let me go to the meet and greet. I had to drop her off there, but she had an amazing time. At the very end, I met Jessica Kent who said, your daughter's so wonderful. I wanted to meet her dad and we shook hands and I thanked her for the work that she's doing. And she thanked me for letting my daughter be a fan of her work. Honestly, I'm so cynical about things like social media and YouTube and TikTok and whatever. And I was cynical about this particular performer, entertainer, influencer. And I, I, my cynicism has been just it's fallen apart. I am I am a non-cynical
2: believer, you know, in the potential I, for this to be good stuff. I'm having an instant conversion right here, right now. I'm renouncing everything I just said 90 seconds ago. And I'm <laughs> I'm accepting this because here's the thing. First of all, I totally hear you. Plus, there's so much contrived bullshit that dominates so much of our media discourse. So much of it seems to be sort of genetically engineered to try to hit a bunch of yep. virtue signaling asshat nodes that of course the normal feeling people who really have something to say and want to connect to people will go someplace like YouTube or TikTok or or someplace that's not you know controlled. I love this. Thank you, Elizabeth.
1: By the way, guys, I haven't been listening to anything you're saying because I'm on her medium page and she gave birth in prison. This is I I'm like really I'm drawn in. There's a lot.
0: Yeah. One of the things Jessica Kent talks about a lot is the PTSD she has suffered from having to give birth in prison. My understanding is while chained to a gurney, to a bed, to a stretcher, and that experience has haunted her and her experience of of childbirth, motherhood, et cetera, ever since. So she talks about PTSD. She talks about imprisoning people. She talks about the war on drugs. And yeah, she returns to that particular theme and she's super smart about it. And you know, I'm such the asshole, right? I look at her, I look at her past. I look at her sleeves of tattoos and her sort of, she looks very alternative and, and I'm so judgy. And I have to eat all of those words with like a big dollop of mustard from the Mustard Museum because it was an amazing, amazing weekend. Uh, Stephanie Butnick? What's up with you? Yeah. Top that.
1: Um, not not much is going on here. Ben and Edith have had COVID for the past week. So it's Aww. been sort of a, a rough time here, but Edith's a champ. She's totally fine. So is Ben. Um, I feel like I don't have COVID, but I have COVID brain. Um, so for I, this is my way of saying that I have not responded or even read any emails you have sent me. Uh <laughs> guys. I'm sorry. I don't know if you were waiting on anything for me, but I have fully checked out.
2: Oh, the the good old, Uh. my baby has COVID excuse. (laughs) (laughs) I had a check off Uh. every time I heard that.
1: Uh, Liel, still COVID
2: free. What's going on in your life? Still COVID free. uh, Still a baseball freak. So this beautiful Father's Day weekend, we were down visiting the in-laws in Wilmington, Delaware. Sunny Wilmington. Home of a baseball team called the Delaware Blue Rocks or Wilmington Blue Rocks, which this weekend played our beloved Brooklyn Cyclones. Uh, So we figured, hey, we're in town anyway. Let's go and check out the game. The game was totally unremarkable, except for a major discovery, which is that the mascot of the Wilmington Blue Rocks is a seven and a half feet tall celery called Mr. Celery. (laughs) <laughs> whose catchphrase is woohoo, which really feels like, you know, some poor marketing exec got an assignment to come up with a new mascot, got totally drunk, woke up in the morning, looked at his empty Bloody Mary glass. and was like, uh, I don't know, man, celery, Mr. Celery. You know, I love Wilmington very much. And this is yet one more thing to love about Wilmington Hudson, who we took to the game, uh, who is almost nine. Was absolutely smitten with his new friend. <laughs> like a giant celery. Mr. Celery. Is, is every boy's dream <laughs> of, a, of a baseball mascot. News
0: of the Jews. N O T J.
3: News of the Jews. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> news of the Jews. Guys, we have a little news from Israel and the political scene there to get to. But before we do, I want to go back a couple of weeks. We didn't get to this last week. It's from the website, Keller. I read you the headline. Kathy Lee Gifford wants her grandchild to call her Bubby. Now, you'll see where I'm going with this in a moment. Kathy Lee Gifford, she has a new grandchild. She has said that she wants the baby to call her Bubby. She said on the air that she asked an Israeli neighbor and friend of hers, what's a good word for Jewish grandmother? And the, the neighbor said, have them call you Bubby. And Kefeller points out this is a little odd because Gifford is a famously devout Christian. But then they point out, well, she has some Jewish ancestry. In fact, her maiden name was Epstein and her father uh, was Jewish. But, but she is like super Christian. That's one of her things. And she's a TV evangelical. And, you know, good for her. We respect all people in all traditions. But here's my question. When you are a famously Christian Christian, when you're like the Christian Christian to end all Christians on TV, and you... I have never even heard the term Bubby. You heard it from your Israeli neighbor. And then you proudly say, I'm going to have my grandchild call me Bubby. Is this not the textbook definition of cultural appropriation? I'm all for people stealing our ideas, but this one feels
2: squeegee to me. I don't like it. Am I alone? Before I even address this, I will say that the first reason I could think to completely endorse this is because it saves the world from having another meemaw. (laughs) Ooh, <laughs> which, as far as I'm concerned, is the single most idiotic term of affection for a grandmother. So one less mima is good, but yeah, it's kind of icky, isn't it? First they come for the satyrs. now they're coming for
0: for our our grandparental. For, first they uh, took Jesus, to,
2: and now they're taking negatives.
0: right?
1: I want the TV show. I want the sitcom about the Israeli neighbor who you come to and ask for things, and she just tells you the wrong My. thing. She's like, "What's a good word for grandma?" And she's like, "Kasha
0: varnishka." In, in Israel, we call we call we call softa kasha
2: varnishka. It's called.
1: Oh, okay. It's called
2: everybody loves Batia.
1: <laughs> I'm okay with it because we offer gifts to the world, right? Like there are so many things. I think I think if she was like Safta... You know, Hebrew for grandmother. I'd be like, that feels weird.
0: Be too specific.
1: But she literally wants the Yiddish word for grandmother. I just want the baby to call me Rebbitzen. I don't know. (laughs) She's like, I'm a grandma in New York City. What should I be called? And they were like, Ah, Bubby. Bubby. She's a born again Yenta.
2: (laughs) Could we get Kathy Lee Gifford? Could we get her like a pillow, like a throw pillow that says Bubby? Like, as a gift Well, from the show.
1: The thing you
0: want to do, okay, guys, to make it truly a messianic Jewish, like an evangelical appropriation of Judaism, you need to throw in random H's. <laughs> like, remember, I was talking about in Northwest Connecticut, I, I saw like Congregation Mishkan Nahamu. Yeah. There were so many, right? Which was Christian, but they were stealing these Hebrew words.
2: Mishana
0: right. There were so many random H's. In it
2: if you you just got to throw in extra extra h's
0: there's
1: like a few hosannas there
2: right Produ- producer Josh cross says uh you know kathy Lee, you, you may use the term bubby but you have to spell it b u h b b h e h
1: now that now she's Persian i want to know like what different <laughs> tradition she's going to take on as part of this. She's going to have a shmata in her hair on Shabbos. By the way,
2: you could only be a bubby if you then have to guilt the child for not calling you frequently enough because otherwise it doesn't work.
0: Um, Israeli neighbor, it's, hi, it's Kathy Lee again. My daughter just had a son. (laughs) Is there some ritual we could do around one week of, like when he's about a week old, is there something we could do to sort of welcome him to our community? What do they do in Israel for that? (laughs) Leo... Now that we've uh, we've dealt with the important stuff, just give us some light trivia. Give us a little sherbet, a little after-dinner sherbet of news of the Jews.
1: Liel, you are our Israeli neighbor.
0: This is true.
2: <laughs> Speaking of things they do in Israel, what do they love doing in Israel more than anything else in the world? What's that, Liel? What have we Israelis done four times in the last like 19 months, guys? As of this morning, the government in Israel collapsed. We are looking at Election, as we say in Hebrew Election numero cinco, number five. The big fifth election is coming in late October, early November. Hey, uh, Mark and Stephanie, ask me why the government collapsed.
1: Why the government collapsed?
2: Nobody knows. (laughs) That's the funniest <laughs> bit. No one can understand or make any sense of it anymore. I think they just got tired. They're like, you know what? We try doing it. This is not working. Liel, I hate to interrupt, but it's a big sex cult, right? They're
0: just partner swapping. The right's been in bed with the left. Now the left wants to get in bed with Haredi. Like, it's just partner
2: swapping. It's so funny you should say this because the best thing that happens from, from this new exchange is that Naftali Bennett, the prime minister, soon to be former, is stepping down, and as part of his agreement with his coalition partner Yari Lapid, Yari Lapid is going to be prime minister <laughs> for three months, which is literally like one of those, like, oh, Henry story of like a guy asking a genie to like grant him his wish, and his entire life he wanted to be prime minister, and the genie's like, Oh, you want to be prime minister? Well, okay, I will make it so that you would be. <laughs> the least powerful. Well,
1: Yair Lapid actually wished for three more wishes. My favorite line comes from the New York Times article. In a show of unity on Monday night, Mr. Bennett and Mr. Lapid, the two main guys in the coalition, they gave consecutive speeches from the same (laughs) stage. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, these grown adult men. Yes, they did. They agreed to stand on the same place and talk one after the other. So well done, boys.
2: Good boy. Good boy. In the new election coming up in November, we're going to do things a little bit differently because this is the fifth turn. Um, Everyone is going to wear green track suits with a number on them, and it's going to be a (laughs) giant robot. Playing green light, red light, and it's just going to shoot uh-huh. candidates, and the last one standing is prime. We're basically squid gaming it now because there's no other thing that works.
1: But I like that everyone's like, no one expected this to even last a year. It literally lasted just a year. Like, it's like <laughs> <laughs> the alliance was. It's like it's like Diano. If it lasts a year,
2: it beat my over under. I I thought it would collapse long ago. The thing that really astonishes me about Zionism is that someone looked at a minion in Shul and said, you know, it would be really cool if there would be an entire country run by these people. Guys, like
1: (laughs) I can't even do Kiddish. Like, come on. Have you ever been to a synagogue board meeting? Great. Let's bring that to parliament.
2: Right. (laughs) That with an army. Uh, J.
0: Crew, we want your thoughts. Two questions of the week. Number one, um, Kathy Lee Gifford. Bubby or buh-bye, call us 914-570-4869. Or if you have theories about how Israel can make a government last, call us at that number, 914-570-4869, or write to us, unorthodox at tabletmag.com. And now to take us out, the feel-good
2: item of the year.
3: Seid ihr Kinderlech. Ay ay, Kapitan. Ich erreich nicht. Kapitan.
2: Who lives in a shtetl under the sea? Spongebob. Schlemiel and and nebbish is he. The
0: Jew net, the inter is aflame with uh, the Yiddish translation of the Spongebob Squarepants theme by noted Yiddishist Eddie Portnoy. Erstwhile Jew of the Week, Eddie
3: Portnoy. Have a listen. <laughs> Schwmbab Quadra toisen schwam Quadra toen schwambab
4: Quadra I've learned to slam on the brake before I
2: even turn the key. Our Jew of the Week. Listen, I am really the last person on earth who knows anything about musical theater. But even I know this guy is a really big deal, which is why I'm sad I didn't sit in on this conversation. But Zachary Noah Peiser is the first Asian-American to play Evan Hansen in the Broadway show. Wait for it. Dear Evan Hansen,
3: have a listen. If you keep Step out, step out of the sun,
1: because... Zachary Noah Peiser, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And this is not the only show that you've been welcome to recently, um, as you've just taken on the title role in Dear Evan Hansen. What has that been like?
3: It has been incredible. It has been anxiety-provoking. It has been magical. It has been beyond exciting. All of those things, you know, all the emotions that you feel of starting a new thing or starting a new chapter because I have been a part of the Dear Evan Hansen family for some time. So starting this new chapter within this epic book of Dear Evan Hansen is so special, especially after coming out of, you know, that whole little pandemic thing we all experienced where especially as actors, stage actors, we weren't really able to do the thing that we love to do. And so being able to come back in this way and to perform this role um, means everything to me.
1: And so for someone who has never heard of the show, hasn't seen it, what is Dear Evan Hansen? Who is Dear Evan Hansen?
3: I always say that Dear Evan Hansen is about a young boy, young man, who is always feeling like he is on the outside looking in. He is an outsider. um, And he's always looking to connect. But he's having a really hard time doing that because of his circumstance, because of the fact that the play is set in the modern technological era where social media is very prevalent, Um, And it can be so easy for us to just get lost in our phones and forget what it means to actually have real face-to-face, person-to-person connection. Evan is that kid who is desperately trying to connect with everyone around him and is having um, a difficult time. You must have known the show before. The show is now, what, six or seven
0: years old? So you surely knew the show before you were, it was already a phenomenon before you were ever involved
3: in ads. Oh, yeah. In very early college, like, I was hearing about this show. I was listening to the music. I was, like, waving through a window. What a great song. It's amazing. It's incredible. And I remember I saw the show very early on in its development, and I was so struck by the character. I was so struck that especially that someone to lead the show didn't look like your normal leading man, you know, big, strong, strapping, whatever that is. Not only that in terms of the character that was leading it, but the, this this character was, it was so complicated, you know, the journey that he goes on. And that's such a trite word, you know, complicated. Everyone's like, it's complicated. I'm complicated. But it really is, you know, it, it is not black and white. It's very uncomfortable at times. But the greatest thing about this story and about this character is at the end, you leave the theater, you, you take those bows with a newfound sense of hope.
1: And it's not just an emotional performance that you give. It's a very physical performance, right? I mean, I remember reading an article about Ben Platt, who originated the role and like the physical process he went through to get that punch. I mean, how do you train for that side of things?
3: Yes, that's a great question. So a lot of people, you know, the, one of the greatest things about doing this show and working with this creative team is that they are very, you know, you gotta, you gotta say the words. You got to say the, sing the right notes. But in terms of how you get to those emotional places, how you identify with Evan, they really guide you along the way and help you create your own version and figure it out for yourself. You know, if someone said, you got to go do so-and-so's version of Evan Hansen, that would be really difficult, right? Because everyone finds their way into characters in a different way. For me, all I have to think about, it's not necessarily a physical, you know, hunch my back or, or think about something that I have to do with my hands or my body. For me, it really is... I, w- I don't know about you guys, but middle school for me was, uh, it was not great. You know, you did like a feeder elementary school into a middle school. All of my friends that I had in elementary school moved away when I went to middle school. I was this chubby little pudgy Asian Jewish kid. I just looked like a little pumpkin, you know, which like for adults was very cute, but for me I was mortified. And I had a really hard time making friends. So all I really have to think about is, you know, little Zach in middle school who would go eat his lunch in the bathroom or like in the teacher's room because he just didn't feel like he had anybody he could talk to, connect with. And I really kind of just think about that person, how that version of myself, you know, existed throughout the day, how, how he overcame the day, how he made it through the day, all those things to kind of feel that character when I start the show. And also it doesn't hurt to like listen to music that I listened to back then, which was, you know, a lot of like Simple Plan. Do you remember that band? Kind of emo, like that song, (laughs) Welcome to My Life. That song plays on loop in my dressing room. (laughs) All of the poor people around me are like, shut up. There are definitely those kind of cues that make me remember kind of how did that version of myself feel at that time. And that kind of helps me get into character. Believe me, I'm still, you know, I'm still figuring a lot of things out about what is the most honest, earnest, organic way to tell this story that is, as we said, almost six years old. What was the role of theater in
0: helping that middle school boy? Were you into theater yet? And I will confess here, this is part of a bigger question I have of trying to figure out where theater is in American culture because where I live now, I don't see any amateur theater troops around me. So sometimes I get really down and I think theater's gone. On the other hand, Every little kid in America is singing, you know, Encanto and five years ago or seven or whatever, we're all singing Frozen. I mean, there's more show tunes out there. So I'm trying to figure out whether theater is more significant to American culture now, to a 12 year old now, a 20 year old now, than it was or less. And I I don't know, what was the theater landscape when you were that middle schooler?
3: So I grew up in the Bay area, in California, in a suburb in Piedmont, California, uh, which is close to Berkeley, close to San Francisco i went to a public high school public middle school and it just so happened that the theater program at this public school was incredible but the truth is that in middle school i did not think theater was an option for me and it wasn't until literally the end of my high school years i really realized that you know what there really is nothing that can replace the feeling of performing in front of a bunch of strangers and feeling vulnerable, and singing your heart out, speaking those words, whatever it was, whatever the character was, and doing that. And now, I think the major difference is that it is just so much more accessible to everyone. You know, you've got YouTube, you've got Spotify, all these things that we didn't have that I didn't have when I was in middle school. And I think because of that, theater is much more prevalent no matter where you are in the country, because of its accessibility. You can just go online anywhere and think, oh, well, I want to listen to Hamilton. I want to listen to D. Irvin Hansen and listen to the full soundtrack. And because of that, I think theater is much more prevalent amongst younger generations because they can get their hands on it so readily.
1: So will you tell us a little bit about your Jewish upbringing in the Bay Area?
3: My dad is a Jewish white boy from Indiana uh, with Lithuanian roots Uh, and my mom is an immigrant from China who grew up relatively agnostic. And before she had me, she actually converted to Judaism because that was very important to my, my dad. My mom was like, this seems great. It's a great culture. Look at this community that we have in California and so i was born a full realized jewish asian i co- i feel like i coined the term i probably didn't jasian but i like to say that i did um so i grew up in a conservative jewish household with my parents and a conservative temple it's so funny. My rabbi, Rabbi Mark Bloom, is actually flying out to see my show very soon. Um, so shout out to Temple Beth Abraham. Love them. Love those people out there. So wait, like he did your bar mitzvah and now he's going to see you on Broadway? Oh, yeah. And he's seen all my shows. He, he saw when I made my Broadway debut as Bach and Wicked on Broadway. Like he he he's been here for a lot of stuff for me, as has been also a lot of my Jewish community from um, Temple Beth Abraham, where I grew up. Growing up, I went to Hebrew day school during the week. Then I went to like Chinese school during the weekend. You know, I was a very, it was a very intersectional, multicultural household that I grew up in. But Judaism was very much at the forefront of that. We didn't have Trafe in the house. Um, Which is very funny because, you know, my mother being an immigrant from China who had, you know, like pork belly for breakfast, um, not being able to have that in the house was very interesting. But we would like go to my aunt's house and like sneak some like bacon in the morning. Um, (laughs) So we didn't really do any, you know, shellfish, any pork, anything like that. And then when my parents moved, I grew up in the same house until I went to college. When my parents moved, when I left for college, they went to San Francisco proper and they live there now. Um, My mom was like, that's enough. We're doing crab cakes and we're doing pork and we're doing all the stuff. I did it and now we're doing it again. And I think my dad, much to his you know, surprise, he's like, oh, you know what? Pork, you know, it's, it's actually not too bad. I'll have some bacon <laughs> occasionally. He's gonna kill me for saying that, for sharing that on here. But he's like, yeah, you know, I'll have a crab cake every once in a while. But yeah, that's my Jewish upbringing. How do you decide how long to do a part like this? Um, I imagine it's
0: taxing on your voice. I imagine it's taxing on the body. I imagine once in a while you want a little more vacation than
3: doing eight shows a week gives you. How long do you figure you'll do this? It is so taxing, you know, in so many ways, but it's also so rewarding and so fulfilling. I think the best thing that I learned from the pandemic, I don't know about you guys, was being able to just listen to my body. You know, I feel like before then, especially kind of doing this like hustle bustle of being an actor, you're kind of just like, go, 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 never stop. Like you can sleep when you're dead, do all the things, audition, do this reading, do this workshop, do that TV thing, do all this stuff. And like, you know, if you sleep an hour at night, then good for you, but you don't need it. And I feel like the thing that I took away the most from the pandemic was it's actually really good, surprise, to listen to your body and to be able to do what it needs it has been a really beautiful journey with the show and i think as of now my time with it will be i think it's going to be through the summer of this year and i think that timing is really kind of perfect for my body my brain to kind of culminate this whole experience for myself and to also not like you know break my vocal cords and break my body because i as much as i love this show I don't want to compromise my overall health, but it should be said they do a very good job of kind of helping you along the way and making sure that you're very taken care of in that building. There's, there are masseuses, right? I mean, there's a there, that's like in the equity contract is. Oh my, right? if I could tell you the amount of people that I have, I've got, you know, we've got PT in-house, I've got a vocal coach, I've got an ENT speech pathologist specialist, I've got, you know, a therapist for my brain, which everyone should go to therapy, please do. I'm I have, you know, a trainer that I work with, a nutritionist that I work with, all these things to kind of make sure that we are in the tip. For real? You have a whole whole entourage? I have a whole team that I have assembled because it is no joke. Stephanie, as my boss, I want you. (laughs) My next
0: contract, let me just say Jewish year 5783, Oppenheimer is negotiating a much better contract than he has right now. Totally,
1: totally. That's, uh, Yeah. (laughs)
0: You know, I saw the movie with with my kids who are, I think I had my 15, 13, and 11 year old there. And I'm just imagining the mail you get, right? You are playing a role that is iconic, totemic, et cetera, pick your word, for a sad, scared adolescent boy anywhere, and anyone who feels othered or sad or scared or lonely in any way. You must get some crazy ass mail. I mean, you must, like, the people who reach out to you and say, this show saved me from self-harm. This show got me to therapy. This show is my only consolation, right? I mean, I listened to the soundtrack a thousand times a day. Am I right? I'm just imagining the fan love must be
3: insane. A million percent. I mean, this show, the reason why it is so successful is because it speaks to everyone. You know, if you're a parent, if you're a child, if you're anything in between, if you're a sibling, you know, you don't have to be in their exact circumstances. But everyone can understand what it feels like at some point in their life to feel othered. And for me, kind of the extra layer of how valuable and how fulfilling that is, is being the first Asian-American, first Asian-American Jewish person to play this part. Asian. The first Asian, thank you, Mark. Asians, yeah. So being the first Asian American and Jewish Asian person to play this character kind of takes that to the next level because I'm able to kind of give a voice to those communities that have not been able to be given a voice in this specific show. In those ways, you know, mental health in the Asian American community is very difficult to talk about. Feels like it can be difficult to talk about sometimes in the Jewish community as well. Although we are a bunch of talkers anyway, but be able to do that for those younger generations who feel othered because of how they identify or not really is what makes this experience, you know, this experience for me is so life-changing in so many ways, but that specific aspect is something that will always move me to tears and will always be something that is so tremendous and that I will remember for my life forever.
1: Zachary, Noah Peiser, it is a privilege to talk to you. I'm so excited to see you as Evan Hansen in Dear Evan Hansen. And I think all our listeners will be as well.
3: Thank you so much for having me. Jaysian trademarked here. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> our friend Abby Pogerman is the moderator of The Minion, a new series of moderated roundtable discussions from Tablet Magazine about the state of the Jewish community in America. The Minion's going to offer a variety of perspectives and it kicks off with a roundtable featuring American LGBTQ Jews. Abby joined us to talk about the first installment of this series and also to share a little too. Have a listen.
1: Abby, welcome back to Unorthodox. It's great to be
5: with you. So please tell us about this exciting new project you're working on. Well, I have to give full credit to my editor, Wayne Hoffman, who approached me with the idea of The Minion. And basically, the idea of The Minion is that it will be a series where we gather ordinary people, not experts, just to have your everyday Jews who live in a particular way with a particular identity and just take the temperature of like, how is the Jewish community doing when it comes to that cohort affiliation, identity, whatever word you want to use. So it was my job then to kind of comb the country and find people who be representative. Obviously, we're not going to have every possible demographic and category, but wanting to make sure we had diversity of age, of location, of background and identity. And the first minion is focusing on LGBTQ plus Jews. So we have uh, folks in their 30s. We have um, two over 50, one who's 63. We have people from Brooklyn, Detroit, Phoenix, Missouri, Atlanta, Chicago, Ogden, Utah, and L.A., people who identify as lesbian, as trans, as non-binary. One person said, I'm an old-fashioned gay guy. So it's really, it really is the spectrum. And again, not to make these people kind of uh, stand-ins for everyone else, but because the the lens changes depending on some, how some identify. Obviously, I haven't even mentioned the spectrum of Jews. We have um, all the way from orthodox to reconstructionist to reform to not, you know, non-denominational. I think what I learned from this experience, first of all, is that for anyone who is looking for a Jewish home, who identifies as LGBTQ, you can find that home, that there are remarkable opportunities, communities, um, both old and new. That they're already there. They're already wise. They're already teaching Torah that looks looks at it with a, with completely new eyes, and and eyes that are, I think, as Jewish as our you know thousand year old ancestors. So look for it. You'll find it.
1: Abby Pogrebin, thank you for the minion. Uh, we look forward to celebrating future minions with you here on Unorthodox.
5: Thank you so much for
1: having me. And now let's hear from some of the Minion participants.
4: I don't go to the LGBT community, so to speak, to express my Jewishness. I go to express my queerness, I guess. And I go to the Jewish community to unpack my queerness somehow and figure out why God made me this way. Am I part of all of this? I mean, if the question was... Do you feel like you need to be kind of out-Jewish among gay people? Not so much, actually. I feel like I need to be out-Jewish among Goyim, generally. I'm trans and gay, and I came out and dealt with this um, in the late 80s, early 90s, before there was a whole panel of people I could you know, potentially talk to about this. And so, you know, I, I just felt very alone and I felt, why did God do this to me? And what is my place in the universe and etc. And, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion actually that it's a blessing, not a curse, that it's not that I believe in God. I know that God exists because God has been involved in my life and has smiled upon me in many ways. There, there are like halakhic spaces where tradition and the
6: needs for change are wrestled with. My wife is a conservative rabbi and I'm a conservative Jew, capital C. And that's been a space where I feel like that. And then also in the, you know, the Galitarian traditional spaces, I, I feel like the tradition is wrestled with something, but you can still be observant and, Deeply in these ideas, I personally am Shomer Shabbat, Shomer HaG and Shomer Kasher, and that is an essential part of my life. And I can't imagine not being those things any less than I can imagine being not trans. The other point important to mention is joy is the joy of being queer and Jewish. There are so many experiences I've had where I've been in queer Jewish spaces, and it's just felt magical. The one quick example I'll give is uh, going to queer Talmud camp at Sfara. And it was interesting. I found that even in Svara, there were like different pockets of people. And I found a lot of really radical trans Torah happening among the trans and non-binary clergy, but also just people who were very invested in these texts. And there was a whole presentation on like the trans told dot of all, of all the, the patriarchs. And like, this has always been a queer story. And it was it was transformational
7: about joy and and in queer Jewish spaces. I had to think of the last time I was in a queer Jewish space, and I can only think of one. So it's really nice to know that there are places out there for people like me, where people find joy. And not to say that I don't have plenty of joy here, but it's it's kind of lonely with me being the only well, one of I would say maybe five out Jewish people in my. My congregation and that's rounding up <laughs> and that's including my girlfriend who's not who's not Jewish it's definitely isolating my my little congregation in Ogden is is tiny we have we have about 49 member units and we are we're so big right now that's really big for us yeah it's it's small but our, my synagogue is very much DIY we don't have a rabbi we don't have any staff it's it's really what you make it and mm-hmm. when I um when I moved back home, moved back to my, my hometown synagogue and started leading synagogue services and got on the board, I really wanted to make it fit me. And that meant, you know, coming out to the members and coming out to myself, which is which was harder. Um, and and really just just saying, damn the consequences. I I want to see if I can fit here and I can, and I'm really glad
1: I can. You can check out the first installment of The Minion at tabletmag.com Minion. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by The New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's Spring Season of Jewish Culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, It it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it.
8: mailbox got a letter in the mailbox got a
2: letter in the mailbox mailbox to the
0: mailbox so much good mail this is just the best mailbox week ever such a good mailbox week allow me to begin this mail came in the traditional way which is to say email Hi, Unorthodox. I'm not going to post any refutation to Mark's wife, Sid's assertion that Jews don't camp as it's clearly an emotional as opposed to a fact-based argument for her. Oh, no, she didn't. Oh, (laughs) she just called my wife irrational. Dang, (laughs) dang. You want to compare LSAT scores with my wife, sweetie? (laughs) I would just note, I I go back to the letter. I would just note that a sukkah is basically a lean-to she tells Sid. And also that I am friends with two Jewish women who regularly take Jewish children on
2: backcountry canoe trips.
1: Some of her best friends are Jews who camp. Two of her best friends are Jews who camp.
2: Backcountry canoe trips is a great name for an album. They're douche canoes that they use in the backcountry
0: canoe trips. Backcountry canoe trips is a tremendous alt-country band. Uh, The letter concludes... Since this was a cooking episode, I thought I'd give you my car camping pancake recipe. And then it goes on with this very, very long involved recipe for car pancakes.
1: I love that. I want some car pancakes.
0: Yours truly, Sharon Graham. Now, Sharon- Obviously, I say this with tremendous love. First of all, if you ever disrespect my wife again, I, will, I know where you live. I, will, I know your your IP address.
2: I will find you. I will end you, Sharon Graham, okay? This, this is-
1: okay, when you go find her, will you be eating her car camping pancakes on the way? I want to go
2: camping again just to make her car pancakes.
0: Do you think that they heat up on like the carburetor? Do you think you they, they fry up on the, the hood of an overheated car? Second, Sharon Graham you don't actually enhance your case by saying, and also I'm friends with two Jewish women who take their children camping. Like it makes it sound like you found the two Jews who camp. I hereby rest my case and I move on to this equally unpersuasive voicemail that we got to the voicemail.
6: Hi, this is Acharya and I love you guys. I wanted to comment on Jews and camping. Uh, I don't believe the trope that Jews aren't into camping because it from my personal experience. But also, because I don't believe any uh, tropes or stereotypes about Jews. And in fact, I think that all stereotypes of religions, ethnicities, cultures, nations, religions are largely bullshit. I've lived in different parts of the world for extended periods of time. And when you deal with people one-on-one, those kind of stereotypes are not only inaccurate but unproductive. Uh, thanks for hearing me out. Have a great day. Bye.
0: My friend, all I have to say to you is, if all stereotypes are bullshit, how are we supposed to do our show? No stereotypes,
2: no unorthodox.
1: You want us to do work (laughs) to, like, really understand people? No. Dude, it's all we got. Uh,
0: Staying with the voicemail, uh, we have this one from Marge.
8: Hi, my name's Marge, and I want to say something about Jewish camping. When my sons were small, they belonged to a Jewish Boy Scout troop that was based in a synagogue here in Houston, and we had a song written by the band Modern Man called Jews Don't Camp. Um, It's all about why Jews don't camp, but the Boy Scouts camp all the time, even Jewish ones. I love your show. Bye.
0: Okay, Marge, fine. You've persuaded us. You camp. You and Sharon Graham's friends, two sons camp. Fine. What I really want to talk about, first I want to thank you for sending us the song Jews Don't Camp. We're going to play that right after the mail. Second, I want to interrogate your pronunciation of Houston, I've talked about this on the show before. I've never found a sociolinguist who can explain to me why some people say Houston and a certain minority say Houston. Houston. I'd like you to call us back and tell us, did your parents say Houston? Did your kids say Houston? Where does this come it. from? I kind
2: of love it. Hold on. I, I kind of want to adopt it. So in other words, not Houston with a beautiful, mellifluous, <laughs> but rather you stone with a sort of hard consonant, a diphthong,
0: if you will. And finally, from our uh, telephone inbox, our voicemail box, we've got this one.
8: Hi. This is Ann Carol Goldberg. Uh, My husband, Paul, and I are about to turn 80. I love your podcast. Love it. Camping. We did that for years, years and years. Tent camping, at least three decades worth. And then we wanted to see what was beyond the Mississippi to the west because we're from Rochester, New York. So we bought a motorhome. We're now on our third motorhome and we camp all over and drive all over. Yeah, it's not quite under the tent anymore, but, you know, we have a little arthritis. So uh we look for Jewish campers. There aren't many of us, but we're out there, and we have a place in California where we are doing seders to a mostly non-Jewish group, but they love it, and so on and so on. So I vote for camping no matter what type it is. Thanks for your program.
0: Okay, you guys, you sound legit. You're on your third motorhome. That is some serious, I don't know if that qualifies as camping. It's some serious backcountry canoe tripping. It's also, I have to say, seriously, somewhere around motorhome number two, you traded in your Jew card. And I will go out there and I'll say that.
2: Mark Oppenheimer, my absolute dream in life. I I, I aspire. I am waiting. I am counting the days until I could retire and buy my first motorhome. What are you talking about? You have you have like a, a roving shul. I, it's a mitzvah tank. It's the best thing oh that could God. happen. It's a mitzvah tank. <laughs>
0: Uh, uh, Stephanie Buddick, do you want to take us to the Facebook group? They were also into the question of whether Jews camp.
1: Yes. Mark, you sparked a heated debate in the (laughs) Facebook group. This is a comment from Rebecca Landis. She says, I love to camp. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and have been camping since I was a child. I think the people who say Jews don't camp have a very narrow view of the Jewish American experience and think that East Coast urban Jews are representative of all American Jews. They are not. I think she's a thousand percent correct.
2: I love this, but the Facebook group comment Olympics were won, no doubt, by Eric Roskus, who wrote, he, by the way, he, he tagged himself. Eric Roskus is in Dartmouth College. He wrote, if Mark had gone to a real college like at Dartmouth, he'd think differently about Jews and camping. Eric Roskus, oh. yes, you win.
0: Sharon Graham comes from my wife. Eric Roskus comes from my my educational yikes. <laughs> uh, wait, can I tell
1: you my favorite one? Sure. From Amy Natterson Kroll. She says, camping is definitely Jewish. See the photo of my grandmother in the early 1920s. She was born in Kordyshev, about 30 miles from Kiev, married in chicago and moved to la she and my grandfather apparently camped all over the west
2: that'll be the west
1: of the pale of settlement <laughs> they instilled an amazing love of the outdoors and nature in their children and grandchildren can i dig into this a little bit and and point out she said she and my grandfather apparently
0: camped all over the west
1: well this was in I, the 20s i I'm, I'm, I'm honestly i'm going to say
0: i think that means no casting shade on your grandma here I think she told you stories of the camping trips that she wished she had taken. Like, grandparents are completely unreliable when they talk about their early years and their courtship.
2: I don't know.
1: The thing I respect about you is that you're doubling down on this. Tripling so people down. People being I'm, like, I do this thing. And you're like, I don't believe you. I will say, Amy,
2: <laughs> a- Amy Madison Kroll did use the word uh, out of doors, which reminds me that at some point when I was in college, some professor tasked us with coming up with a Hebrew term for outdoors. And literally no one could do it. I, I minored in linguistics. No one could do it because it's so foreign <laughs> <laughs> to the very nature of what, what by Bachutza the way, I am
1: looking still. I am looking at a photo of Amy Natterson Kroll's grandmother camping. She's in a tent. I'm looking at photo, uh, photographic Photoshop, evidence. Like, it's photoshopped.
0: <laughs> Deep fake. <laughs> I do want to say though I do want to say, though, this is like our our Facebook group is such, you know, this is real mishpucha. The Jewish geography here is intense. Amy Natterson Kroll tagged Eva Wildowski and said, Eva, just an FYI, I posted a photo of your great aunt (laughs) twice removed, my (laughs) grandma Esther, in Yosemite in the 1920s. I agree that our extended family is a wonderful illustration of dot, dot, dot. So, wow, Amy Natterson Kroll coming with the assist to post Eva Wildowski's great, great aunt. In Yosemite, first of all, Yosemite didn't exist in the 1920s. It actually was a project well, of the New Deal. Well, it was just called Deal.
1: Yosemite in the, in the 1920s.
4: That's right. It's all deep fakes. Producer Josh here. No, Mark, Yellowstone was not created during the New Deal. On June 30th, 1864, Abe freaking Lincoln signed the Yosemite Grant Act, which granted certain parts of the land to California as long as California had promised to preserve the land as is for public use. Only eight years later, in 1872, President Ulysses S. Grant signed the Yellowstone National Park Protection Act, making its 2.2 million acres into the first national park in the United States. And many believe it's the first in the world. And it's definitely one I freaking camped in. So there.
0: Now, look, obviously, obviously, I am, uh, the literalist. among us have accused me, have called me out on playing to stereotypes. Many, I concede that some Jews have camped.
1: How's that? Wait, I'm not done. I have two more comments I need to share. There are two incredible comments. One is Rebecca Heidowitz. She says, my dad told us Jews don't camp whenever we would ask if we could go camping. I was well into undergrad when I realized that this was probably because he's not outdoorsy and he knew we'd probably accept that answer.
2: Dad, dad, can I have a car? Jews don't drive. Jews don't drive. We don't drive
1: on Shabbat or any other day. Can we go out to a restaurant? Jews don't eat. <laughs> this one from Dana Malik. I'm sorry. I'm probably pronouncing your name wrong. Um. My family camps in Canada and it's actually the perfect family trip for those who keep kosher. You cook all your own food anyway and grills can be sterilized with fire so easily. Mm-hmm. True oh, that. I love this. That is a loophole.
0: Honestly, my family camps in Canada is my mic drop moment. Fine,
2: fine. There are some people who go to Canada and camp.
1: Eating kosher hot dogs on the grill. I need kosher
2: hot dogs. Need I say anymore? Is my family camps in Canada the equivalent of, oh yeah, I totally have a girlfriend. She's Canadian. <laughs> She's Canadian, right, right, right. <laughs> oh, you've never seen her because we do it in Canada. <laughs>
0: Oh, J. Crew, we love you so, so, so much. Keep it coming. 914-570-4869 or unorthodox at tabletbag.com. I will triple and quadruple down on all my most absurd, ridiculous, unfounded claims, just for your entertainment.
9: They said we'd like you to join us. There's plenty of room. We got a nice big tent and there's a big full moon. I stood up wind and said the only thing that I could. Yeah, I had to tell him Jews don't camp If it hasn't got a lobby I don't want it for a hobby It's cold and damp Let me give you the news
8: Jews don't camp
1: Jonathan Ornstein is the executive director of the JCC Krakow, and joined us to tell us a little bit about the work that the JCC is doing with Ukrainian refugees. Will you start by telling us who you are and where you are?
9: <laughs> where am I? That's an interesting question. I am Jonathan Ornstein, the CEO of the Jewish Community Center of Krakow. And I find myself in the unorthodox studio. (laughs) But you're in New York. I am in New York City. You're not in Krakow right now. I am not in Krakow. I am live in New York. And this is where you come from, right? I am from New York City. I grew up in Forest Hills, Queens.
1: In the past few months, your job, your work, your life has, has shifted considerably. Could you tell us what the JCC Krakow is doing to help Ukrainians?
9: So we made a decision on February 24th that we we made two decisions, really. One, we were going to do all we could to help Ukraine fully focus our institution on whatever that meant. And we didn't quite understand what that meant. We're not a humanitarian aid organization, or we weren't on February 24th. We do all we could. And the other was that we were going to help Jews and non-Jews equally. Not only help Jews and non-Jews, but provide whatever we could, do it in a blind sense of not not caring about who we're helping, trying to help everybody. And that started with a small collection point of, of goods and food and clothing in our center. And that's just grown and grown and grown to the point that we've helped probably about 70,000 people. So far, we're housing 400 women and children a night in, uh, in hotels that we're paying for. Feeding a thousand people a day, psychological services, legal counseling, job training, um, language classes, safe space for women, uh, daycare. So just have really somehow turned up, really probably doubled the size of our institution and have become a full scale humanitarian aid operation in, in two months, three months.
1: It feels like the JCC Krakow is uniquely situated, not just geographically, right? Well, Poland is, of course, right next to Ukraine, but but almost in, just experientially, like ideologically, you seem to be the right people to be helping right now. How does the JCC's mission in Krakow influence you, sort of what you're doing with with what's going on in Ukraine?
9: I think that first of all, we're we're guided by Tikkun Olam. We're not only there to serve the Jewish community. We do a lot with the LGBT community, with women in in Poland, which have become really a Targeted, <laughs> targeted group uh, with with a lot of laws that have been passed and, and a certain environment that's become the case in Poland. Um, so we're, we're we're very mindful of that, of not only looking at our Jewish community and seeing that as our mission of trying to you know taking taking the tikkun olam rather seriously in our center but beyond that you know our, our normal work of rebuilding jewish life is why are we doing that you know why are we in this position because 80 years ago the jewish community was decimated almost completely during the holocaust because essentially you had a different dictator that uh, that arose and the world was mostly silent so 80 years later when we have not a parallel situation but we have something uh, going on where there is a dictator next door to us. And we as Jews uh, hopefully have learned the lesson of the Holocaust, which is not to be indifferent. So we feel that, that the silence that we, we, that turned us into victims, we have, to, we have to not be silent when others are being targeted.
1: You interact regularly with Holocaust survivors you know, all the time in, in your work. What do they have to say about what's happening and, and what, what you guys are doing to help?
9: It's been really inspiring, so, I mean, one, the Polish people have been amazing, and Poland is a country which hasn't always responded very well in situations with refugees coming in, has been great. But our survivors, these these uh, survivors that were mostly uh, children during the war and were, were saved by non-Jews and have, you know, have memories of, of very complicated childhoods of both being victims and also being rescued uh, by people, were stood up really in in one voice and and support what we're doing and asked us to continue doing that. And we even had had a situation where um, where there was a meeting of ch- of uh, child survivors of the Holocaust. And uh, during the meeting, one of the one of the survivors stood up and she had been in the Warsaw ghetto and she stood up and she pointed across the hall where these women were coming in with children and taking food and taking uh, all these different supplies that we were giving them. And she she pointed and said, that was once us. And she said she proposed to the to the survivors during the meeting that they take their annual dues that they pay for their organization and that they donated to help the refugees. And they all stood up, you know, unanimously and voted to do that. So, you know, I think that it's really beautiful, this idea that you've been a victim and you've suffered and your response is to is not to not to say wait the world didn't help us that much so we're we're not too bothered about what's happening but the opposite to say we need to change what's happening and we we need to stand up and and support these these modern day victims
1: and so what is Krakow like more I mean now there are all these refugees there I mean have you what are ways in which you're seeing the effect of the war in in your sort of day-to-day life outside the JCC Krakow.
9: What's really been remarkable is how the Polish people has reacted and and just welcomed these Ukrainians into their homes. We have um, a single mother in our community, and she, at a certain point, had 23 Ukrainians living in her her house. She had like a three-bedroom house, so it wasn't some massively huge place. 23 people living in her house. It's been really remarkable to see how an entire society um really speaking in one voice has has stood up and said that what's happening in Russia is is uh, you know shouldn't shouldn't stand and we need to do all we can and they've actually not only you know said that but taken you know poles aren't a very wealthy population necessarily and they've taken people in in the city of Krakow the population is about 750,000 and there are more or less 150,000 refugees in the city right now and Um, The city itself is housing 10,000 of that 150,000, which means individuals and NGOs like us are really doing most of the heavy lifting. But it's remarkable to think that 85, 90 percent of the refugees are being housed outside of the, you know, not, not by the city, by the authorities. So
1: you're from the United States, have lived in Poland for quite some time. Now you're back here for a bit. What do you want Americans to know? I mean, you're you're there. You're so close to what's happening. Is there when you come here, do you want to sort of just shake us and and tell us something like what what are we missing about what's going
9: on? I mean, I think Americans are actually pretty up on what's going on. You know, everybody I talk to is is, you know, wants as asking me very detailed questions about Ukraine and what it's like and what about this and I feel like sometimes the people asking me questions, especially these larger geopolitical questions know more about it than I do, I'm just sort of focused on trying to feed people and house them. It's been just remarkable how much the Jewish world cares about this issue and not only about Jews but cares about Ukraine and is being incredibly generous. All that we're able to do and hopefully will continue to be able to do comes from really philanthropy of of, uh, American Jews.
1: Jonathan Ornstein, thank you so much for all the great work you're doing. How can our listeners learn more about the JCC Krakow and all the work that you guys are doing?
9: Uh, we have uh, uh There's a lot of information there if people want to get involved. We set up a dedicated link to be able to donate to us. We are an American um, nonprofit, a 501c3, so you can make tax-deductible donations. Uh, and that's friendsofjccrackout.org forward slash Ukraine. And every dollar goes to support Ukraine.
2: Mazel tovs. Leo, do you have a mazel Tov this week? I have a mazel tov. as I'm sipping this delicious martini here. I discovered a very delicious made in Harlem vermouth started by a guy named Will Clark. It's called Little City Vermouth. Usually, as you know, I allow the vermouth to observe the gin. And that's the only interaction that they will ever have. But this stuff is actually great. So I, I put a drop of it in my martini, which is a big step for me. This has been my lifestyle super goyish endorsement of vermouth. Today's Mazel Tov brought to you by the Letter John and the Number Cheever.
1: <laughs> <laughs> my Mazel Tov is for the families of two friends of the show who welcome new babies this week. Mazel Tov to David Beshevkin and his wife Tova and Mordechai Lightstone and his wife Hannah. We're so excited about your new additions. Guys, I have I have no Mazel tovs this week,
0: but I have two farewells. Uh, really really sad news. Two of my dad's very, very closest friends died over the past couple of weeks. His friend, Michael Chernoff, is of the Chernoff brothers, John and Michael, who go back to my dad's Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh childhood. They've been friends, I guess you'd say, I don't know, my dad's in his late 70s, 70 years. And he died this week as did my dad's friend, Joe Domenico, a, a more recent friend. They've only been friends um, since the mid seventies. <laughs> so, you know, only as long as I've been alive. So 45 years or so. And my parents have had an extraordinary run of good luck with most of their friends are still so healthy and as they are healthy, thank God. And um, it shocked me because I guess I think of that generation as indestructible. And these are two men, especially Joe, I grew up with in, in Western Massachusetts. And I'm just, you know, I have, I have a heavy heart, and I hope that, um, I hope that whatever whatever their eternity looks like, that it is filled with vermouth and laughter and good times. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibovitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, and Quinn Waller. The team also includes Sarah, Fredman Ader, Jerome Rusquet, Tanya Singer, and Sam Hacker. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook. You can get our swag t-shirts, hats, onesies, beer cozies, etc. at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Our episode art is by Esther Wordiger. Theme music is by Golem, And our mailbox name is by Steve Barton. We would love your snail mail. right? to P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, true. 1- 0001, but also, you can write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com at or leave a voicemail at 914-570-4869. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Michael Fell at Temple Emanuel in Providence, Rhode Island. And we come to you while celebrating pride right here at Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends.